Radio Westeros, Episode 1, A Gift of Mercy. Welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere here in Boston, and joining me from England is Yoke Boy. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to our first episode. For the next 45 minutes, we'll be discussing the A Song of Ice and Fire novels by George R.R. R. Martin. And just briefly about us, Yoke Boy and I are Song of Ice and Fire fanatics, and we hope you are too. We both have our own websites and have written a lot on fan forums, and now we've decided to team up and offer this podcast series. Yes, we hope we can provide at least some entertainment as we're all eagerly awaiting the winds of winter. We have a wide range of topics planned. We love everything about these books, really, so hope you'll stay with us and enjoy listening. Each episode will be offering analysis of the books, but also theories. Rather than critique other theories that are already out there, we'll be trying our best to present our own fresh ideas that you won't have heard before. It might be more fun that way. And to break up the talking a bit, because we'll be doing a lot of that, we'll be pulling out all the stops to make this uh, radio experience. Each episode will have short readings set to specially arranged music. We've got sound bites and pseudo adverts from Westeros, music from the fandom, and a lot more things like that. Yes, that's why we are Radio Westeros. And for the record, our definition of canon is the text and the direct word of the author, nothing else. For our spoiler policy, we have no limits, so that's all five books. But if we're going to discuss Winds of Winter material, we will give you a heads up. So, heads up now, actually, because this episode will be all about Mercy, the recent gift chapter from The Winds of Winter, available at georgerrmartin.com. Mercy features a first peek at Arya since A Dance with Dragons. She was last seen being given a new face, a pretty one this time, said the kindly man, after a stint as the ugly little girl. The kindly man was sending her away to Isambaro, and at the time, we weren't entirely sure if this was a person or a place. In this chapter, Arya has moved on to her next phase. Isambaro has been revealed to be a mummer, and we have an intersection with a storyline that was introduced at the end of A Dance with Dragons, where Sir Kevin tells the Master of Coin, Harris Swift, that he may need to go to Bravos to treat with the Iron Bank personally. We'll be looking at the contentious issue of whether Arya used Needle to kill Raph uh, and speculating about what the future might have in store for her. In both cases, we hope to show you things you might have missed. We'll also analyze the play featured in the chapter as we have reason to believe that Arya's mercy is not, in fact, playing the role of Sansa Stark. We'll explain why later, but let's begin the show with a very short reading we've prepared. This is the first minute of the Mercy chapter, read by Lady Gwynne. She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. The smell of blood was heavy in her nostrils. Or was that her nightmare, lingering? She had dreamed of wolves again, of running through some dark pine forest with a great pack at her heels, hard on the scent of prey. Half-light filled the room, gray and gloomy. Shivering, she sat up in bed and ran a hand across her scalp. Stubble bristled against her palm. I need to shave before his embargo sees. Mercy, I'm Mercy, and tonight I'll be raped and murdered. Her true name was Mercedine, but Mercy was all anyone ever called her. Except in dreams. She took a breath to quiet the howling in her heart, trying to remember more of what she dreamt, but most of it had gone already. There had been blood in it, though, and a full moon overhead, and a tree that watched her as she ran. 
had fastened the shutters back so the morning sun might wake her. But there was no sun outside the window of Mercy's little room, only a wall of shifting gray fog. The air had grown chilly, and a good thing, else she might have slept all day. It would be just like Mercy to sleep through her own rape. So thanks for doing that reading, Lady Gwyn. Oh, you're welcome. And the reading shows Aya in a a new role, and it introduces important themes, mercy, identity, and sexuality. Right. So the name Mercy in itself is a theme we see a lot of in Aya's arc, don't we? Yes, we do. It's starting with the uh, Piper Bowman she and the Hound find in the Riverlands after the Red Wedding. And he asks for the gift of mercy, right? He does, and the hound delivers it, but Arya watches and learns. He delivers it. And then Polliver's squire? Polliver's squire, whom Arya uh, stabs during the fight at the inn with the hound. And uh, this time he forces her to give the gift of mercy. This time it's Arya that does it. And then it's the hound himself at the Riverlands. Whom she refuses to give the gift to. Yes, after she changes her mind, she was on, he was on the list. He's and been he's in off her prayers, list. and then he's off the list, and now he's not yeah. worthy of mercy. It's good behaviour, obviously. Yeah. And then in this chapter, we see we see this with Raph. He asks for the gift, doesn't he? Yes, he is asking mercy for mercy by the end. Yes, yeah. and this theme with Arya and Mercy this association it's, it's always by death isn't it right being part of the yes. faceless man that's part of their theme uh, right. but it's interesting to consider that Sansa also has this strong association with Mercy through the books she does uh, her Mercy is all about compassion it's the mercy of the mother it's caring um, it's associated with the seven yeah compassion and yeah. protection right uh, so Arya's association is by death and Sansa's by compassion. That's another layer to their <laughs> contrasting personalities, roles. They're foils, aren't they? Yeah, and George created them to be the sisters, to be foils to each other. And um, this is just one more element of that. Yeah, he's just layering up as he usually does. And it's also interesting that Arya and Sansa's mother who's now Lady Stoneheart, has got another name, which is... Mother Merciless. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, interesting um, triangulation between the mercy and death and mother. And you think this is on purpose? This... I do think it's purposeful. Yeah, it's uh, such a strong theme. He doesn't... He he's tends to uh, layer things up like this, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he does. He's looking at this one from all angles. It's very deep... From all angles, definitely. And another another theme that he likes to look at from all angles is identity. And this comes up in the first line, we have Aya waking, not knowing who she was. And this um, this is partly because she's waking from a wolf dream, but is this a nod at her identity again? Yeah, I think so. She's... Um... She's struggled with that for a long time, going way back. She... Uh, hasn't been clear on her identity. And the one mm, constant... Essential. Right. It's, essential. This wolf dream is the constant for her. Yeah, the wolf dream is something innate, and, and it really contradicts the uh, faceless men 
ethos, isn't it? It's the one thing that, you know, she can't get rid of, even if she wanted to. She's going to have these wolf dreams, isn't she? Right. Yep. On the outside, she's saying she doesn't want to be Arya, um, but she can't get rid of this. No, she can't. And that is part of her unshakable Stark identity. And this dates back to the first chapter of Game of Thrones, where the uh, direwolf cubs were found and Ned was reminded about the Stark sigil. Mm -hmm. So this is embedded and it seems to be a problem with the faceless men. But um, we have wondered if... The kindly manor actually knows about these wolf dreams and knows about her wagging, haven't we? Yes, we have. And um, I think that we have a pretty good clue that he does know in Dance with Dragons. Yeah, we have some quotes here. When Arya is trying to convince the kindly man that she's no one, she has a conversation with a faceless man she calls Plague Face, who says, You have the eyes of a wolf and the taste for blood. Is is this a hint, do you think? Yeah. It sounds like a hint, doesn't it? Yes. It's right from her dreams. She sees through a wolf's eyes and tastes blood in her dreams. So there's some way that he's knowing. Well, there is a couple of hints that a wag can sense a wag, so maybe something to do with that. Very interesting. Another theme that came up strongly in this chapter is sexuality and this is the first Arya chapter where it's been a, a central theme isn't it yeah it comes up uh, right off the bat with the the language of rape it does and it's in the last sentence and mm-hmm. the word rape is used a lot isn't it it is and it's uncomfortable right away because we don't know at first anything about the play or mummers we just know Arya's in a new role and the word rape is mentioned and um, it's very uneasy and my mind was taken back to feast when the kindly man says to Arya that she's gonna have to give up everything to be part of the faceless men and he, he mentions a body so uh, George has planted some seeds Yes. Back then, hasn't he? To kind of instill some danger Mm -hmm. that, you know, Arya might have to uh, do something she doesn't want to do. Yes. Uh, I think, you know, the hints are way back there. And then we get this, you know, this early introduction of Menace in the Mercy chapter, which I think, you know, builds through the chapter. And it it ends up to be a, a misdirection. Yeah, because he, he George instills this menace, this feeling of menace, or sexual menace, with Arya. She's 11 years old, isn't she? Right. So it is, uh, some of it is quite disturbing, kneeling in front of a dwarf yep. with a big penis and stuff like that. But then the then when she takes uh, Raph back to her room, she uses it for her own, to get what she wants, she uses it for her own gain, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah you start to see that she's trying, she's turning the tables and that menace quickly becomes directed at someone other than her. So, someone else yeah. it suffers the menace, don't yes. they? Yes, right. And I think we're all uh, glad to see what what Arya uh, ended up doing with Raph. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll talk about that in depth later. Right. One, nine, two, kilo, kilo, kilobytes per second. second. Coming from your stereo. Your stereo. Radio. Westeros. Westeros. So let's talk about this play, the uh, rape and sexuality language that we've had in the chapter early on turns out to be 
in reference to the play that the Mummers are performing in honour of the Westerosi envoy. Yeah, it was penned by Fario Farrell, and it's called The Bloody Hand, and that's an interesting title. Uh, there's some bloody hand references in the text, isn't there? Yeah, there are quite a few throughout the text. Uh, a couple that we think are pertinent here. We have Raph's bloody hands right in this chapter. Yeah, we've got the quote, when he pressed his hand to his thigh, blood squirted through his fingers. So, bloody hand there. Yes, definitely. And a second one, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes. But first, let's uh, have a brief overview of the play by looking at who the characters are. Starting with the dwarf, played by Bobono, who seems to be the central character. Yeah, Bobono seems to be uh, playing the role of Tyrion. There's quite a few quotes. It's quite straightforward. Uh, one of them, My noble sire he made of purest gold, and gold he made my siblings, boy and girl. But I am formed of darker stuff, of bones and blood and clay. So that sounds like Tyrion, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And Mercy, of course, tells Raph to come back after the imp's done raping her. So there's an imp reference. And she also says to Bobono, you'll have no nose until you get your hands off me, which is a nod to the reader. Yeah, I think so. And finally in the play, the dwarf has the line, let me be the monster. And the monster is something Tyrion's called a lot, isn't he? Yes, repeatedly throughout the books. He calls himself a monster. Others refer to him as a monster. Um, there's one very prominent line that is said in public in a very... Yeah, uh, that's at the trial. He right. says, you make me sorry. I am not the monster you would have me be. Yes. So I think that's nailed on Tyrion there. I think so. I think it's pretty clear. And we move on to the Queen, played by Lady Stork. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that Lady Stork is the actress and uh, not one of the characters in the play. But she wears a cloth of gold gown that the Queen would wear in the wedding scene. Right. So this is Cersei, isn't it? Yes, yes. This time, the nod to the reader is a little nip of wine she liked to have before each play. Right. Uh, definitely Cersei. Okay, next. We have the king, played by Isimbaro. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a large part, but he does have a splendid fight with a demonic boar. So this is King Robert, obviously. Yes. And it's worth mentioning that there's two kings in the play, and the other one's a boy, so we're assuming that's Joffrey. Right. And, of course, the boar himself... Yeah, even the, the ball gets a role. Yes. Big Brusco plays the boar, who kills the king. And we have Maro playing the stranger. Representing death. Right. And then, of course, we have the role that Mercy plays. Uh, this is an unnamed young girl. And I think on first read, most people might have assumed it was Sansa. Yeah, definitely. And this is because she is described as a maid, so our minds go to Sansa straight away. Yes, that's right. But it's also told to us right at the very beginning that this character is raped and murdered. Right, raped and murdered, and that is the first thing we learn about Mercy. Yes. So And that's it doesn't seem to fit Sansa, does it? No, no, I think that's a significant detail. And... Sansa was definitely not 
either one of those things. So we may have to look elsewhere. Uh, and we have looked elsewhere and think we may have a suitable candidate in Shea. Yep, Shea. So I think if we trace the origins of the play, we might find some clues there. Yeah, you have to consider where this play's come from. I mean, it's arrived in Bravos. It seems to be rooted in King's Landing, the events of King's Landing. Right. A playwright has heard the story or seen something and presented it with a bit of artistic license. So if we go back to where the initial idea came from, we might be able to find some clues. Yeah. And I think we should look at one of the big events of King's Landing recently, and that would be the trial of Tyrion Lannister. And one of the significant testimonies there, of course, was that of Shay, who started out describing Tyrion's big penis. Right, because in the play, the dwarf has an unusually large penis. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, the trial... Shay tells the jury and the crowd, he used to make me tell him how big he was. My giant, I had to call him, my giant of Lannister. And the reaction among the crowd, well, this really entertains them. The laughter swelled twice as loud, it says. There were hundreds in the throne room, every one of them laughing. So you can imagine this is almost like this trial is almost like theatre and someone right. realising that this is a very good story, it's entertaining yep. and, right. you know, Chinese whispers and it gets, somehow gets to Bravos, right? Yes, yeah, there's definitely some commonality there. And one other thing in Shay's testimony is that she uh, describes herself as senses made. Of course, Mercy is described as a maid. Right. Which is uh, why people think it's Sansa. But Shay presents herself as very innocent as well, doesn't she? Not yeah. just Sansa's maid. Right. She says she's, uh, she was innocent before Tyrion took her. Right. So that certainly could lead people to think of her as a maiden. Okay. So the last thing that Shay would have to fit is the rape and murder. And what do you have for that? Well, if we go over to the murder of Tywin Lannister, uh, which is where Shay's body was found prominently placed in his bed, naked. Yeah. And with the, with the necklace, the hands necklace embedded into a neck, bloody hands there. That's right. That's right. So, and I suppose the presumption would be that she had been raped since she's naked there. Yeah, and the scenario when her body was found, there were people around. It will be all over the castle by nightfall. People talk, people see and they talk, mm -hmm. and uh, there were plenty of people around. Cersei yeah. warns them if they mention Tywin in their stories that she'll have their tongues cut out. So it's easy to see how people would have thought that Shay was raped and murdered. Yes, definitely. And these are servants and guardsmen, and they're definitely going to talk, and word will leak out. Uh, it seems to have. So if you, if you combine Shay's body being found with the information and testimony she gives at the trial, you have what we know of the play. Yes, raped and murdered, uh, a maiden. And I believe... This fits Shay. That's what I believe too. But it's interesting why people 
think it would be Sansa. The, the maid is one thing, but it's, it's maybe something to do with familiarity, isn't it? People undoubtedly thought it would be nice if Arya was playing the role of her own sister. Um, yeah, so it's, it would be like a reunion, which a yes. lot of people want. And they, yeah, we're more familiar with Sansa than we are with Shay. Right. So, so that's perhaps another reason why. Yeah. And so going back to the title of this of this play and what it's about, it is really about Tyrion, isn't it? He's the centre. Yes. Tyrion's story, distorted as it is, ties into the motif of the bloody hand, both in the sense of him being the perpetrator of the crime, as well as the reference to the chain of presumably bloody hands round Shay's neck. A former hand of the king with blood on his hands, killing Shay with the bloody hands necklace. That's what we think is at the heart of this bloody hands play. And all this talk of the hands necklace reminds me of a song. He rode to the streets of the city, down from his hill on high. Over the wines and steps and the cobbles he rode to a woman's side. For she was his secret treasure, she was his shame and bliss. And a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. And that was a band called Tall Like Tyrion with their song Hands of Gold. It was based on Simon Silvertongue's song, which he was later killed and made into soup for. <laughs> Tyrion recollects this later at his trial and also when he murders Shay. So Tall Like Tyrion, this band, have written a mini album of A Song of Ice and Fire inspired tunes. Thanks so much to them for giving us permission to use it on our show and I'm sure we'll be hearing more of them in the future. We highly recommend grabbing their album, which you can find at Bandcamp. Yes, it's great music from the fandom. We love it, and it's already proven to be very popular. Right, that's true. They have their songs posted on YouTube under the username Cakes, and they have racked up well over a million views there, which is quite incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic to see. So well done, you guys. And we're always on the lookout for music, art, and so forth coming from the fandom. So if you know anything special out there, do let us know at RadioWesteros at gmail.com. Okay, just to wrap up the analysis of the play quickly, there's a few more interesting things going on worth mentioning. Aside from what's going on within the play, there seems to be various nods to the reader. In the space of a couple of sentences, side by side, we might be seeing allusions to Aya's remaining kin that she grew up with, Sansa, Bran, Rickon, and Jon. Yes. Very close together, we first have the name Lady Stork. This evokes Sansa. Next, a mention of Bloody Paste, reminding us of Bran with his weirwood sap paste, often described as bloody. Then the stranger loses a horn, so he's one-horned like a unicorn, and Rickon comes to our minds. And right after that, Isambaro loses his crown and asks, How shall they know that I'm a king? And this could be a Jon Snow illusion for all those that think he was born a king. There's lots of Jon as king hints going through the text. Examples, Mormont's raven, squawking king, and a great one from Ned and Robert. Kings are a rare sight in the north. Robert snorted. More likely, they were hiding under the snow. Snow, Ned. Yes, that's a good one. One of my favourites. And if these are illusions we have, Sansa, Bran, Rickon and Jon are grouped together. 
In a chapter largely about Arya's stark identity coming through, as we'll be discussing later, this is all of Arya's living family that she grew up with. And there's no suggestion that Bran, Rickon, Jon, or as we see it, Sansa, are even in this play. It just seems like George being playful for the benefit of the reader. Yeah, and these nods can create some confusion. I think it's important to separate them from what's actually going on in the play. One example, and a quite unappealing one, is Bobono's fake penis. It's large, and as we said, this can be traced back to Shay, who put that information in the public domain at Tyrion's trial. Right, but Bobono's penis is also described very similarly to Tyrion's, as we see in Sansa POV, with a bulbous purple head. Now, this is a mistake from the dyers, it says, not a purposeful resemblance. And that's because it's a nod to the reader. It doesn't have any meaning in-universe to any of the characters. It's a nod to us that this is Tyrion, nothing to do with Sansa having described it to anyone, or her being in the play, we think. Confused? We don't blame you, but maybe George likes it that way. <laughs> yes, I think he does. And before we move on from talk of dwarf penises... <laughs> yeah, Radio Westeros keeps high standards. <laughs> yes, we went there, didn't we? <laughs> and now here's a message from today's sponsors. Whether you're defending a kingdom or trying to conquer one, we've got your financial needs covered. The Iron Bank is always glad to be of service, but remember, the Iron Bank always gets its debt. Valar Mogulis, Valar Dohakis. And that's a message from the Iron Bank. And so, do you pay your debts, Lady Gwyn? Yoke boy. Lady Guinevere always pays her debts. Right. So, moving on, let's now take a look at the climactic scene of the Mercy chapter. So, to set up our next reading, which will be Mercy's encounter with Raph, we have the Westerosi envoy in the theatre to see the play, and he has a number of guardsmen with him. Mercy recognises one of them and thinks the gods have given her a gift. She approaches to confirm that it is indeed Raff, and he introduces himself as Lord Rafford. She makes a quick decision to lure him away. It becomes clear that she's going to use her sexuality to do this, which adds an even more uncomfortable element to this reading. Even Raff's companion points out that she's too young and it's disgusting. Yet we know that back in Clash, Arya heard Chiswick telling Raff about having sex with a 13-year-old girl, so she doesn't seem to see that as a concern. In fact, Mercy seems more worried about being able to attract him. As she's formulating her plan, she listens to the dwarf's line in the play, As I cannot be the hero, let me be the monster, and lessen them in fear in place of love. And she thinks that these are better lines than hers, and apt besides. Then in the next passage, she promises Raph that she can teach him to say a line. So referring back to that language of lessen them, combined with teach and the idea of being a monster, here's where we begin to see the sexual menace really redirect. Rather than being a victim, we get the feeling Mercy's taking charge. She tells Raph they have to go back to her chamber. She takes him out into the foggy Bravosi night and has him run all the way there. When they arrive, he is all tired out and the scene is set. And so here's another very short reading. This time we have the killing of Raph the Sweetling. Mercy, he said. My name is Raph. I know. 
She slipped her hand between his legs and felt how hard he was through the wool of his breeches. The laces, he urged her. Be a sweet girl and undo them. Instead, she slid her finger down along the inside of his thigh. He gave a grunt. Damn, be careful there, you... Mercy gave a gasp and stepped away, her face confused and frightened. You're bleeding. What? He looked down at himself. Gods be good, what did you do to me, you little cunt? The red stain spread across his thigh, soaking the heavy fabric. Nothing, Mercy squeaked. I never... Oh, there's so much blood. Stop it, stop it, you're scaring me. He shook his head, a dazed look on his face. When he pressed his hand to his thigh, blood squirted through his fingers. It was running down his leg into his boot. He doesn't look so comely now, she thought. He just looks white and frightened. A towel, the guardsman gasped. Bring me a towel. Press down on it. Gods, I feel dizzy. His leg was drenched with blood from the thigh down. When he tried to put his weight on it, his knee buckled and he fell. Help me, he pleaded, as the crotch of his breeches reddened. Mother, have mercy, girl. A healer. Run and find a healer, quick now. There's one on the next canal, but he won't come. You have to go to him. Can't you walk? Walk. His fingers were slick with blood. Are you blind, girl? I'm bleeding like a stuck pig. I can't walk on this. Well, she said, I don't know how we'll get you there, then. You'll need to carry me. See, thought Mercy, you know your line, and so do I. Think so, asked Arya sweetly. Raph the sweetling looked up sharply as the long, thin blade came sliding from her sleeve. She slipped it through his throat beneath the chin, twisted, and ripped it back out sideways with a single smooth slash. A fine red rain followed, and in his eyes the light went out. Valar Mokulis, Arya whispered. Thanks again, Lady Gwyn, for another reading. And in case you're wondering what Arya stabbing Raph in the neck might sound like, I've got this. Did that sound gruesome enough? Yes, I think it did. That was great. Okay, back to business. Of course, this scene with Raph brings us back to the original reason why Arya hates him. Um, his killing of Lamy way back in Clash. And this seems to be a parallel scene. A lot of the language seems to be almost identical, doesn't it? Yes, it does. The, the way it's written, the sequence of events, the were uh, Can You Walk? And you've got to carry me uh, right down to think so and the point going through the throat and then the blood spraying out. Um, It's almost identical. Yeah, if you look at them side by side, they're clearly uh, cross-referenced by -hmm. by George here. Yes. And Arya's going for some poetic justice, it seems. Uh, I think she is. Uh, She created this scene. Almost like an art form, like play. Like, yeah, in the context of the play, it's very fitting. Right, it's right in keeping with her current identity. Yeah, and the faceless men and the mummers share a lot in common because Mm. it's acting. Right. So that's why she has uh, gone to the mummers, hasn't she? Yeah. Break down the killing. It starts with the, the leg injury, which is quite sudden. And, um, Lomi suffered a leg injury. In the parallel, and yeah. so this this blade that she uses to presumably slice his artery in his thigh, the femoral artery, is got to be something small because Raph doesn't see it. It's got to be very sharp, and it's got to be easily available, which is interesting because earlier in the chapter we learned she has a a, a fruit knife on her hip, 
that belong to mercy. Yes. The fruit knife belongs to mercy. But the, the actual blade that we see killing Raph? is a long, thin blade that comes out of her sleeve. Which is going again back to the fruit knife quote. She says that she has three secret pockets and in one of them is a real blade. Yes, and I think it's significant that it's noted that this blade does not belong to Mercy. My first thought on reading this was, this is Needle. Sliding out of a sleeve. And this is the first time she has been called Arya in the books since when? Since the blind girl chapter, when she became the blind girl. She has not been called Arya since that time. And there's a play on a name there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Right before uh, the long, thin blade comes out of her sleeve, Raph says to her, are you blind, girl? And the answer is a clear no, isn't it? She's not the blind girl anymore. She is, in the very next line, Arya. Arya, and for me this confirms it, that... Or it makes it very, very, very likely that this is a Needle. Because Needle is linked so strongly to Aya and a Stark identity. And here she's killing someone on her list. And she's being called Aya for the first time in a long, long while. From Boston to England. From Dorn to the law. Always going that extra mile for your satisfaction. For your satisfaction. Radio. Westeros. Okay, so once again, we're going to talk about the theme of identity. It's something huge in these books, uh, not just for Arya, for so many characters. It's really a central theme that George likes to deal with from as many angles as possible. He does this in standard ways. Like Jamie wanting to reinvent himself. Yeah, reinvent himself, and we see some of the conflicts that can cause. Uh, there's Theon being transformed uh, psychologically and physically. Becoming Reek. And the many hidden identities, and that's an infinite amount if you're going to count all the crack. Oh, hidden targs everywhere, yes, <laughs> yes. Then you have the glamours and appearance, people changing, and that kind of ties in with mummers too. Yes, you have Varys. He changes <laughs> his appearance a few times, doesn't he? He's got quite a few identities. Yes. And there's people not yeah. knowing their true heritage, people being reborn with altered selves and personalities. We've got warging, where you're in the body of an animal and how that can affect you. And we've got um, people being controlled by other people. Right, Holder by Bran. But this theme of identity is especially strong with Arya. She's had many identities. Can you list them for us? Yeah, of course she started out as Arya of House Stark. And even while she was still that, she had nicknames, Arya Underfoot, Arya Horseface. And once she leaves King's Landing, um, she sort of goes underground and becomes Ari. Weasel, Squab, Salty, Nan the Cupbearer. And while she's all of those things, she also has alternate identities to those. The Grey Mouse, the Sheep, the Ghost of Harrenhal. Right, and this is before 
<laughs> she gets to the faceless men. This is all before she gets to the faceless men. And the faceless men is an identity crisis in itself, isn't it? Because right. you can't just change your, your face. You, you've got to change yourself, haven't you? When you take on a new face, that's the idea, isn't it? That's right. And she, they want her to stop being Arya of House Stark and become no one. And when, when you put on a new face, we learn that you also get memories of the person whose face you're wearing. So that's another dynamic. Right. Can you name right. the faceless men personalities that I has taken on? No, oh, she's been Cat of the Canals, Blind Beth, the ugly little girl. Of course, we see her being Mercy here. Even uh, the servant um, at the House of Black and White calls her Stick. Um, and during all this, she never stops being the Night Wolf. Let's right. Forget. We and talked about that before. Yeah, and of course, no one. Right. So George likes to add further layers to his central themes as the books go on, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Like, like with magic, for example, you know, each book reveals a new layer and you wonder what's going to come next in, in, in the next couple of books. Yeah, I uh, wonder with Arya um, if the identity theme is going to be more closely connected with the wearing of faces. Yeah, and what's the next step for Arya in a theme with identity? We do have some very wild speculative ideas about what's next. It's it's hard to read what the future holds for Arya, but in the absence of textual hints, we'll look at some storytelling logic to try and um, get Mm -hmm. some ideas. Yep. So, presuming that Arya is going to come back to Westeros, whose face could she wear? That would be the ultimate in terms of storytelling out of everybody. Well, of course, the most poetic one would be if she were to wear the face of fake Arya. That would set up a lot of very interesting dynamics. Yes, it would. So if that was going to happen, fake Arya, a.k.a. Jane Poole, would have to go to the House of Black and White. Is this plausible? Yes, we have two thoughts why this is definitely plausible and perhaps even foreshadowed. First, there were these thoughts from John when he learns that Arya has arrived at the Wall. Remember, at this point, he doesn't realize that it's really Alice Karstark. The Wall is no place for a woman, much less a girl of noble birth, is what John thinks. And he says a few times in dance that the Wall is no place for a woman. It's simply not a safe place, is it? Right. And he thinks of a solution, too. His first idea is to send who he thinks is Arya to Bravos. And the quote is, she could return to Bravos with Tycho Nestoris. Yes, and Tycho will be going to Bravos when he returns to the wall. We know that. Exactly. So with fake Arya, Jane, now about to arrive at the wall, this could be foreshadowing or a large hint, maybe, of what would be done with her when she arrives. And it certainly seems like the most logical choice. Right. We see in the Winds of Winter Theon sample that fake Arya is heading to the Wall and that she's actually already with Tycho and Justin Massey. As we've mentioned, they are both then going to Bravos. Yes, and presuming there's going to be some kind of fallout or chaos at the Wall, I think that's likely given what happened to Jon, whether the wildlings take over or whatever. There seems to be a quite a dangerous place. Arya is with... Alisane Mormont. Right, who seems unlikely to just leave this young girl at the wall with no protection um, if there's any kind of chaos or danger going on there. 
No, and she was sent as a female companion, maybe maybe a motherly figure. Mm-hmm. I could see her wanting to take care of Arya, and possibly the only way to do that would be to send her or take her to Bravos with those who are going there. As we saw, it was foreshadowed in John's thoughts about his sister way back in Dance. So if Jane was in Bravos, she has a couple of very good reasons to visit the House of Black and White, doesn't she? Yes, she really does. She's uh, been through a lot of torment, um, and you'd think she's out of it now, but she's really not. No, her nose is described as just about to fall off. It's gone black, it's got frostbite, and she's described as crying constantly about this. Right, she's terribly disfigured and... Yeah, and this is someone who is friends with Sansa and probably always imagined herself to grow up as a an attractive young lady. I believe she even says in um, Dance with Dragons that she was always a pretty girl. Um, so I think that's part of her identity. And she, like you mentioned, the psychological torment. Yeah, she's been through so much being forced to be Arya. And she... This is, this is what's hurting her now. She has to remain as Arya. And it says right. that she cries even more because Theon tells her, you know, you can't reveal who you are. You've got to be this person right. who has been abused no right. end. You just have to keep being that. And there's no way out. So the, the, the worst identity crisis you could imagine. And, and she's stuck with right. it. So she's, she's got two major reasons to visit the house of black and white. And this is highly, highly speculative. We're aware of that. There's not much evidence. But there's a a couple of quotes we have. Yes, both from Theon, um, and both relate to Arya's alter egos. Um, When Jane is crying uh, about her face, Theon says to her, no one will care what Arya looks like. No, no one, one will care. So maybe another play on Aya's name there, right. no one. And the other, just maybe a little hint that Arya is coming to uh, Winterfell in disguise is Theon praying in front of the Winterfell heart tree um, and asking for mercy. Right, so another possibility for a play on the mm-hmm. names. And like we said, Jane has every reason to um, ask for the gift of the House of Black and White, which would provide the faceless men with quite a valuable face. Yes, it would. And this is a very interesting idea, I think, despite being admittedly light on evidence, because the dynamics it would create are really quite quite interesting, don't you think? Yeah, it- it's really fascinating. Um, you know, there's the sort of grim possibility that if Arya were to wear Jane's face, um, she might feel her experiences. Yeah, her memories her and memories. her dreams. Yeah. And, I mean, the possibilities are endless, but one thing we thought of is what if she, for example, met Sansa and she couldn't reveal who she was that's right you know she had to keep up the disguise as as uh, as jane pool it could happen 
We know that Sans is one of the few people that knows Jane's true identity, so it's certainly in the realm of possibility that the two could come together. Yes, it does seem possible. And we know from Jack and Hagar posing as Pate that taking a face means more than just taking a face. It seemed like a full body glamour. So there's no reason why Arya couldn't pose as fake Arya with all the dynamics that that would bring. And that's just an idea we came up with for how Arya's identity theme might progress to another level. We do like to speculate like this. We're just having fun. <laughs> just having some fun at the end, because that's the final part of our analysis. So that is that. Thanks very much for tuning in to our first episode in this podcast series. We really hope you have had fun listening. Uh, we certainly had fun making it. Yes, we did. Uh, it was a lot of work, but it was also great fun. Uh, of course, there's so much we couldn't fit in here in this time frame. So we welcome your comments and continued conversation. We can be reached at RadioWesteros at gmail.com. We're also on Tumblr, Facebook and Twitter, so you can find us there. And we'll also be posting essays that accompany each episode with all the kind of quotes we've used and so on if you want to read them too. And speaking of episodes, you can download uh, or and subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud. That's right. So if you've enjoyed this one, then you can subscribe and we promise there's a lot more to come. Uh, regarding frequency, we are aiming at every three weeks. We would like to narrow that, but it does take a long time to research as thoroughly as we like to and also to get the sound right. So thanks for your patience. See you in a few weeks. Just a reminder, Radio Westeros will always be free to you. And if you feel like giving something back to us, all we ask you to do is post a link and help us spread the word. And next time, we're going to offer a very close look at Sansa Stark. All going well, we're hoping to have our first guest on the show. The co-author of the illustrious Sansa Pawn to Player project, Brash Candy, wants to join us. And we'll do our best to make that happen. Regardless, me and Lady Gwyn have both written for the PTP project. And we're hard at work on the episode as we speak. We're just going to try to dig in and offer some fresh insights into the world of Sansa. Until then, I'm Lady Guinevere, and you can find my Song of Ice and Fire website at ladyguinevere.wordpress.com. And I'm Yoke Boy, and you can find me floating around the internet at tearsofblood.org. Finally, we of course have to give due credit to the people whose creations have been used in this podcast. First and foremost... Thank you so much to George R. R. Martin for creating this amazing, wonderful world that we've all become so immersed in. And thank you also to the musicians who have allowed us to use their music under Creative Commons licensing. Radio Westeros does not infringe on any copyright. So a special thank you to Nine Inch Nails who let me remix and use elements of their Ghost album and also to Costa T for the song Complex 4 which was the haunting violin track you heard. And full details of those songs in the mp3 tag and also on our social media as well as licensing info not only for the music but for all the artwork we've used. So goodbye and we hope to have you back next time for our Sansa episode. Yes we do. Bye for now.
Hi, everyone. I'm Jen. And I'm Jess. We're the hosts of the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to tell you about Strivectin's new Super C Retinol Brighten and Correct Vitamin C Serum. We often interview dermatologists on our podcast, and two of their favorite skincare ingredients to recommend are retinol and vitamin C. This Strivectin serum has both in one lightweight, layerable formula. It also helps to smooth fine lines, and it's clinically proven to visibly brighten and firm skin. If you want to learn more about Strivectin's new Super C Retinol Brighten and Correct Vitamin C Serum, Visit strivectin.com.